let's seek the Lord. Lord, you have uh, promised that those who seek you will find you. And Lord, we come now seeking you, seeking that in the study of your word we would experience you and your grace. We so desperately need your grace this day. We so desperately need you in our lives. And Lord, we, we confess that we take for granted how much we need you and that often we get ahead of ourselves and think that we have things under control only to have them blow up in our faces. And there we find you, not shaking a finger at us, telling us, I told you so, but with open arms ready to receive your people, to wash us, to cleanse us, to renew us. And Lord, I pray that as we sit before your word here today, you would do just that. Wash us, cleanse us, draw us in repentance, draw us toward you and draw us toward one another as a congregation that we would know your love and share your love with one another. Bless this day, bless this study, I pray. In the mighty name of Jesus, I ask this. Amen. We have a, a saying in our culture, like mother, like daughter. We have a saying in our culture, like father, like son. Alternatively, we might say, like parent, like child. The idea of this saying reflects the socio-familial phenomenon that a child will often have the traits that are similar to their parent. As well, a child might have certain similarities to their, their parent, uh, not just in terms of the way that they look, but in the way that they act. Mannerisms, colloquialisms, cadence of speech, habits, interests, and the like. Sometimes these reflections take place early on. You, you know, I'll see in some of my little kids, you go, oh man, he's just like me in that, in that regard. And other times they may manifest later in life. I, for example, have had a few moments in my adulthood, especially in becoming a father, where I find myself parenting and doing things that my dad did uh, to me when I was a kid. And, and even some of the things that I swore to myself I would never do, I find myself doing them and using phrases that I, you know, I hadn't uttered in, a, in, in decades, but all of a sudden they, they, they come out of me and you have this, oh my gosh, I'm like my dad, like father, like son. Well, today is Mother's Day, so my sermon begins with the title, Like Mother. So the beginning of my title for today's message is Like Mother. But rather than following it, it with the rest of the colloquialism, like, like mother, like daughter, or like son, or whatever, I've titled the sermon today, Like Mother, Like Mission. And I want to take us into the text of the Bible and, and take you to a place where we see the impact of mothers on the mission of God. We will read about two women in particular, Lois and Eunice, a mother and daughter. As well, we will reflect on the impact of these godly women on their grandson and their son, the historic figure Timothy. That said, would you please open your Bibles and find your way to 2 Timothy. As you turn there, let me give you some historical context. And I'll follow our historical context with some reflection on our own context before we begin reading the text together and studying it as we go. In the New Testament, by way of context, we have two letters or epistles that are written by the Apostle Paul to this historic figure, Timothy. Respectively, they are known as First and Second Timothy. The context or the situation of these letters involves a division facing churches and the Apostle Paul himself in the throes of personal attacks and mounting persecution, even imprisonment, being sent to jail for the faith. Timothy is a leader in the church who Paul trusted and loved. As well, Paul loved the church 
And so as he writes to Timothy to instruct Timothy and to encourage Timothy in the face of their tumultuous culture and hard times, he he has a heart not just for Timothy but for the church that in the face of these hard times and in the face of the the divides and, and mounting pressures that are coming upon them, that they would flourish and they would thrive and they would walk in the way while having far worse than uh, what we can imagine sitting here in this prosperous and free country, not to mention this international and thriving urban center of Los Angeles, while having it far worse than, than we do in this day, we still analogously find ourselves in a turbulent culture that's filled with hard times, and there's some comparisons we can make with regard to their historical context and our contemporary context. Like our day, the ancient Rome of the Apostle Paul's day, new pandemics, new political corruption, they knew tribalism, they knew injustice, they knew the abuse of power, those things were familiar to them. To a lesser degree, we have tasted these things in 2019 and 2020 and 2021, and we see how easily folks can divide, even uh, churches can divide, Meanwhile, God prunes his people and the gospel goes on and we continue in gathering for worship and working together and making disciples who will carry on the gospel in hopes of of seeing faith come to the lost while walking in common grace to serve our neighbors, to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly. The epistles of the Apostle Paul overflow with these themes of humility and love and mercy and justice and service. Further, they are obsessed with and locked on the local church's mission to herald and to defend the gospel. The Apostle Paul is eager for the church to spread orthodoxy while living out that orthodoxy in what we call orthopraxy. It was loud and and clear to the readers of these letters that they had a duty and that they had a doctrine to uphold. There was belief and there was behavior that was important to the heart of the apostles as they led the early church. They wanted the church to keep their eyes on the prize. Let's do this. Let's go. And so Paul writes this letter that you have in front of you as a part of mobilizing leaders for mission. In this case, the leader is the historic Timothy. In this case, it is the congregants that Timothy is leading around Ephesus. And he is leading them in what we refer to as the Great Commission. I don't want to assume that everyone here knows what the Great Commission is. The Great Commission, by way of introduction to this message that seeks to highlight mission, the Great Commission is a phrase that we use in reference to Jesus' parting commission to his apostles to lead the church in the mission of discipleship. You can read about this in all four Gospels, Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, and John 20. You can also read about this in the beginning of the book of Acts that overlaps with the ending of our four Gospels in Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. Jesus commissions his disciples, and he tells them to do what he did in their lives, namely, to make disciples. I made you into disciples, mathetes, talmudim, learners, apprentices, When you follow someone around and you learn from them, that's what it is to be a disciple. You're you're trained. It's your first day on the job. You've got to follow around the manager or whoever, and they, they train you, and eventually they release you to go and do the same, and you find yourself doing the job, knowing what you're doing, and at some point you might be empowered to be a trainer yourself. That's what it is to make disciples. Discipleship involves teaching. It involves telling people stuff so that they learn, so that they grasp certain intellectual ideas. And discipleship also involves hands-on. 
So it's practical and it's propositional. There are things that are taught and there are things that are caught. Uh, this is true in parenting. Uh, we're celebrating mothers today. Uh, mama tip, daddy tip, right, with your kids. You can't just lecture them all the time. They have to see it. They have to catch it. So it, it is taught and it is caught. Jesus lectures his disciples. He, 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 he uh, uh, thinks that they are uh, intellectually prepared through listening to his lectures and training. He thinks that they are prepared through giving them hands-on experiences. And, and based on this, that he thinks they're ready, he then turns and sends them out into the world to go and do the same. He prepared them for this work, and they have been passing on this work ever since. And so we fall in a long line of disciples who made disciples, who made disciples, who made disciples from Jerusalem all the way to Los Angeles. He told them in the Great Commission that they were to make disciples and, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And he told them in that Great Commission as well to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He tells them to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit because that's who God is. God is Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus of Nazareth is the Son, the Son incarnate who has come for us. This world that the God who is, who's Father, Son, and Spirit, this world that God made is a world that turned against God in rebellion. Rebelling against the giver of life brings death into the creation. God in love responds to this plight of death, this judgment against humanity, God responds to this judgment, this righteous judgment, this bringing of death. He responds to this in grace and has ordained that the son would become a man and die in the place of sinners, take the bullet for us, suffer for us, give his life for us, and through that great act, through that great sacrifice, provide salvation for his people. This is what we call the gospel. The word gospel means good news. It is good news in the face of the bad news that humanity has ushered death into God's beautiful creation, but God has responded in giving good news. I will rescue you. I will save you. And what he has promised, he accomplishes. So Jesus comes and now he sends his church. You go and you continue this work. He ascends into the heavens and has promised to return to claim a people for himself, to renew creation, to restore all things. As we are reading this text from long ago, we see the continuance of this work. We see the heart of the apostles still in the heart of the church, the heart of Christ still in the heart of the church. The God that we worship is a missionary God who is sending his people on mission. That is the first point of, of the outline if you have downloaded it and you're looking at it. The title of today's message again, Like Mother, Like Mission. The first point is mission, serving the sovereign together. That brings us to the text. Now we have some context, the big picture of the gospel, the work of Christ that he has passed to his church in discipleship. Now first point, mission, serving the sovereign together. Draw your eyes at the text in verse 1. Paul writes, Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Notice Paul's emphasis on the sovereignty of God. He speaks of the will of God. This is God's doing. This is God's plan. This is God's promise. He speaks of the promise of life. God has promised, and by his providence, he is bringing it to fruition. What exactly is he bringing to fruition? Verse 1 says, life. Life in Christ Jesus. Life. Again, going back to the gospel. Humanity's rebelled against the creator. Death has come. The creator responds in grace, bringing life. 
not just offering life and waiting for us to come and get it. No, he has come to seek and to save the lost and to give life to the lost. According to scripture, we are dead in our sins. Dead. Dead people don't run around looking for things. That would be really creepy if they did, but uh, thankfully they don't. They're dead. They're in the ground. They're in, in the mausoleum or what? They're in the wall. They're, they don't walk around looking for stuff. When you're dead, you're dead. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. But we worship a God who raises the dead, and that's exactly what salvation is. It's a resurrection of a dead heart, of a heart that had no interest in God whatsoever, of a heart that was exactly, as I said a moment ago, lost. But he has come to seek and to save the lost. He has, he has come to rescue you. If you have yet to hear of what I'm talking about this morning, hear this good news and come to him. He will rescue you. He will save you. If you confess your sins and cry out to him for forgiveness, there is, not a, there is not a person listening to this that this does not apply to. His, his offer of redemption, he calls to you. And in saving you, this isn't just abstract. Today's Mother's Day and we think about families. Salvation is a gift that is familial. In rescuing a sinner, he makes the sinner into a son. The sending of the Son from the Father is significant because the Son makes us sons. The language of the New Testament is the language of adoption. He takes the orphaned, the lost, and brings them home and makes them his children. Draw your eyes back at the text and you see the familial language between Paul and Timothy. The church is a family. We have been made sons in the Son, sons and daughters of his Father. So the Son taught his disciples to pray, Our Father... In salvation, my father becomes your father. In salvation, you become a family. Verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved son. There's the family language. My beloved son, it's paternal. Grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul has paternal affection to Timothy. Based on what we read inside of the writings of Paul and also in his co-worker Luke, Timothy was super close to Paul's heart. Uh, we've got two epistles, after all, that are named after him. Clearly, he loves this guy. Uh, they're super close. If Paul had Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever, you'd see a whole bunch of pictures with the two of them, tags, likes, hearts, and all the rest. A, 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 an equivalent of social media was letter writing. And so we, we see this. We see this affinity for him. He's, we have two letters in our New Testament, First and Second Timothy. Clearly, he loves the guy, Paul does, to Timothy. And in other epistles, we see Timothy mentioned some 17 times. Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, as well as in Philemon. If, uh, some, some folks are convinced that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So for those who think that Paul wrote Hebrews, that would make it 18 times because he's referenced in Hebrews as well. We, we see Timothy references in, in the book of Acts some six times as, as well. So this is a significant bond serving together the sovereign. That is the first point, mission, serving the sovereign together. We see this bond. We see this brotherhood. We see them serving together. Based on the references in the New Testament, we deduce that Timothy was led to faith by Paul when he was preaching in Lystra. Thereafter, Paul invited him into discipleship. Let me teach you. Let's do this taught and caught stuff, this stuff that Jesus passed down. Follow me. I'll, I'll, I'll make you into a disciple. In discipleship, you begin sharing life. They're traveling together. They're working together to serve the mission of seeing those who are at war with God find peace in God. That's the language, peace in verse 2. There is a 
peace that has been found in God. And, and in that peace, there is this discipleship that takes place as we reach out to the world and we teach the world the ways of the Lord. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2 speaks of God's grace and his mercy. It has this language of family. Families have their way of doing things, their, their, their routines and the, their traditions and the rest. And so too the church, we have our routines. We gather on Sunday. We have our way of doing things, our, our worship. And, and you learn that organically as you come into community. Notice in this verse that Paul speaks of the Father and he speaks of the Lord. Throughout his writing, we read of his faith in the one God who eternally dwells as Father, Son, and Spirit. This is Paul's God. And Paul gives thanks for his work in salvation, his sovereign hand in carrying the mission. Paul was honored to be a member of the church and a missionary of the gospel. See how he give, gives thanks as we pick back up in the text where we left off. Verse 3, I thank God whom I serve with my conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. Paul speaks of tears. He speaks of joy as he thinks about Timothy. You know, in many cultures, men are prone not to cry. They're prone not to cry. Uh, one of my sons even told me recently, and I, uh, you know, do you cry, Dad? You know, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I cry. You know, you'll, 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 you'll see that happen. You know, I think in my own life, I didn't see my dad cry too much. In many cultures, men aren't prone to cry. Based on historical data, I have reason to believe that the Apostle Paul was a very tough guy. He worked with his hands. He worked hard with his hands. He endured physical beatings. This is a tough guy. Before his conversion, the Apostle Paul was actually involved in a street gang. And uh, he went around beating up people and even killing people, we read historically. He was, he was quite the thug, you might say, a tough guy. On the other hand, he wasn't an ignorant thug. He was an intellectual beast. He studied under the great professors of his day. He was a thinker and a fighter, a lethal combination, a tough guy. Not the kind of guy who would be moved to tears over the trivial. I wouldn't expect to see him crying at the movies. I wouldn't expect to see him crying over music or tearing up after having a hard day at work or whatever. However, when he thought of his boy Timothy and he thought of their work together in the gospel, he was moved. And you, you get the feeling of that as we're reading the opening of 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy is moved as well. Paul speaks of Timothy's tears. They loved each other. There is truly such joy in serving together in the ministry of the church, in growing together in Christ, in fighting sin, in building the church, encouraging one another in the face of discouragement, worshiping the triune Lord, seeing your brothers singing together, listening to the word, drinking the cup of communion, praying and giving and raising your children in catechism and scripture. As we experience God's grace at work in the church, it moves us to tears. Think about what we have here in one another at Delray Church. There, there are brothers in this church. I'll put Mike Dolan on, on blast as he's, we've been in cahoots for decades now. And you look back and see how the Lord has used our friendship and brotherhood to do great things. Many other men is in this church that God has brought in. I think of Pastor Tony at my 12 o'clock here. And he made us friends. And through our friendship, we work together. In, in confronting sin, in calling God's people to see the Savior. And there's, there's so much joy that takes place in that. We don't hang out otherwise. We're not, uh, you know, going out and getting snow cones or going to the movies or whatever. 
I mean, occasionally uh, Mike and I will sneak away and go shoot some guns and do some manly stuff. But uh, our, our friendship is so built around the fact that we are serving together. And there's tears and joy that comes with being bonded when you're serving on mission. And it unites you in the most profoundest of ways. I love reading scripture like this, where you see guys who are connected in this way. Particularly because in our culture, it is very rare to see men with these kinds of bond, uh, bonds. In fact, the scientific and anecdotal research reveals uh, genuinely concerning trends among males in isolation in our culture. Men simply don't have male friendships that are regular and real life and vulnerable. You know, not on Facebook or somebody out of state or whatever who you call on the phone. I'm talking about real life, real brotherly time together. What makes this concerning is both individual and social. Individually, men without male friendships are statistically more unhealthy and less happy. As well, they are more prone to handling stress in destructive ways with higher rates of depression, anxiety, substance abuse, and suicide. Socially, when men are not connected, when men are not working together for a common good that is bigger than themselves, when that's not taking place, society suffer. It's not just men at the individual level suffering uh, you know, with obesity and type 2 diabetes or isolation or you know, wrestling with issues. Yes, it has an effect on our bodies as individuals, but when men aren't living in bonds and serving a greater good than their own lives, our society suffer. It weakens us. It weakens us as a state. It weakens us as a nation. It weakens the social good of a society as, as men live in isolation. Men working together strengthens the culture. It strengthens the men as individuals. It's a key part of male friendship and masculinity. Research shows us this. And over the years of being a community leader myself, anecdotally, I see this all the time. Men who don't work well with others, who don't have a heart of service, who can't walk in submission, men, men like this typically have less or no real male friendships and often have effeminate tendencies in their lives, especially in the ways that they deal with uh, conflict resolution and those who see things differently than them. As well, they have issues with pride. They have issues with taking direction. In the context of the church and discipleship, they are very difficult to disciple if not possible, and often they, they, they have little friendship with strong men in the church for purposes of serving others shoulder to shoulder. Dr. Jeffrey Geef is a sociologist and professor at the University of Maryland who has researched male friendships and has shown how they thrive around shared activities that are, as I said a moment ago, shoulder to shoulder. Whereas women in their relationships, Dr. Grief has shown, are more face to face. Uh, women in their friendships are less about activity, more about sharing inner life and thoughts. In fact, on this note, those unaware of the scientific research and biological differences, not to mention radical ideological liberal fanatics in our day who are denying uh, gender, the thing is friendships look different for guys and gals. The difference is not just social or cultural. In fact, it is biological. Scientists report that our brains may not be wired for as much connection uh, as women. Speaking of men, a, t a 2014 study found that males had stronger neural connections in parts of the brain responsible for perception and action, while females have better connectivity in the neural pathways that link uh, analytics and intuition. 
two areas that are used very heavily in interpersonal co connection and communication. Before this 2014 study, differences in these kinds of neural pathways had never been highlighted among such a large data sample as this study. The point is, guys are, are, are biologically wired for being shoulder to shoulder and doing stuff together for the good of societies, churches, families, and the like. They're, they're wired for this. Less face-to-face, -face. Uh, guys aren't, you know, uh, Mike doesn't call me on the phone and we don't start talking about our inner feelings or whatever. Uh, that, you know, I, I mean on occasion or whatever, but in a masculine way. Uh, you know, we're, we just don't stare each other in the eye and, and, and connect that way. Uh, a little, little tip for moms raising sons. You know, this, when you're in the car with your son or you're sitting with your son, you go, how's it going? Good. You know, uh, what, so what are you thinking about? Nothing. You know, he, he's telling you the truth. They're, they're, now, if you're doing an activity together, you'll find they, they start talking. Stuff starts coming out. We're, we're wired for it. You start building good things. Guys get excited about building good things. Guys get excited about battling bad things. Slaying dragons, slaying monsters, building castles. That, that, we're, we're wired for this. Dr. Amanda Rose is a professor of psychological sciences at the University of Missouri, and her research also confirms this, namely that male friendships are less disclosure-based and they're more activity-based. When it comes to sharing thoughts, uh, guys are just less inner and, and less personal, and they're more about the intellectual, the historical, and the societal. Men fire on all cylinders when they're called to think with their minds and build with their backs and fight with their hands. Bored and isolated and lazy men do the opposite. Like a bull in a china closet, such men will destroy. Paul and Timothy were real dudes and real friendships, living out shoulder to shoulder to serve the church and to fight for the common good in that Roman world. They used their minds, their backs, their hands, not to mention their feet in carrying the, the message of the gospel from city to city. Now, I've talked a lot about men and male friendship as the text has surfaced this. It is Mother's Day, and that brings me to the next point. We move from mission, serving the sovereign together, to the next point, motherhood, sincerity, and saving trust. As we look at the text here, we will see the role of, of, of the feminine, the role of women in the mission of God, and how women work together in the context of the church. With this point of motherhood before us, I want to pause and just acknowledge that not all women are mothers. Further, all women are not called to be mothers. Our scripture speaks about the significance of singleness. In fact, it, there is a divine gift from God for singleness, which the Creator supernaturally gives to women, and to men too, for purposes of God's mission. In the course of my life, I have known many women with this gift, and they are powerful women of God who use the gift of singleness for great things. In fact, in profound ways, because we are a, uh, an overly romantic culture and a, there's a secular hookup culture and whatever, and when those who have a calling of singleness stand in the face of that and say, hey, look, God is, God is, is, is worth more than me having uh, you know, pictures with someone and all that stuff. God, God is first and foremost. And so singleness just serves a profound way in our culture of communicating the value and the worth and the mission of God. The Apostle Paul himself knew this. He had the gift, as we see in the writings of the New Testament. That said, in just a moment, we're going to see inside of our passage, actual mothers, while well, all women are not mothers, all women and men have mothers. So married or not, mother or not, let's read and reflect on the sacred calling of motherhood. Verse 5, where we left off. 
We read in verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, I am mindful, as he talks to Timothy, of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. Paul is close to Timothy. Paul knows his family. As well, Paul knows his faith, and he knows from where his faith came. Ultimately, faith comes from God. Faith, of course, is a gift that comes from the heavens to the earth. Along with it, an alien righteousness that is not our own comes with it. It is not our own, it comes with it. It is one that is freely given to us in God's work of salvation. That work is carried on by God's providence according to God's plan. In the execution, though, of God's plan, God uses the gospel as the power of salvation, and he has ordained messengers to carry the gospel message to his elect so that we, we have the high honor and joy of participation in the triune Lord's work. This is what, in fact, propels our mission. This is what keeps us from cynicism. We believe that God is saving and that he uses us for accomplishing salvation. And he uses and accomplishes this through us, not by our words, but by his word. So there's nothing that I can say or do that brings someone closer to him, for all are far from him. But by the power of his word, he will draw them to himself. And we get to participate in that. Oh, the joy. Now, in the case of Timothy's salvation, we see here that Timothy's family experienced the saving power of the gospel, specifically the, the, the mamas in his home, his mother and his grandmother. Since Paul refers to Timothy in verse 2 as his beloved child, we see that as well if you're taking notes in 1 Corinthians 4, 17, this, this familial language that I highlighted already. Uh, he, he refers to him, Paul does, Timothy, as, as a child, as a son to him. And because of this phraseology, it, it is believed that he probably was converted through the Apostle Paul's preaching. And hence, they have this father-son relationship because he was the one who ministered the gospel to him and the Lord used him to open up his eyes in that way. As well, Paul may have led the matriarchs in his home to the Lord. In fact, that may have happened first. For verse 5, when you're looking at the text, says, the faith first dwelt, you see that, in your grandmother and in your mother. In which case, the mothers and Paul were together bringing Timothy to the Lord. And this is where the title of my sermon comes in, Like Mother, Like Mission. You see his mom. You see his grandmama. You see how, how they are working together on mission. You see the joy that they have in this, in this calling and how God is using these women of God to accomplish his purposes. In the book of Acts, we learn more about Timothy and his family. In Acts chapter 16, we learn that Timothy's mother was Jewish and that his father was a Gentile. In the heated racial and ethnic divides of our day, it is powerful to see in the New Testament how God worked to break down those dividing walls, which sadly are still present today, and more sadly, uh, seeing how in the history of all people, it was often God's people historically that have perpetuated such divisions, and still these divisions continue today. But Timothy was raised in a world where Gentiles oppressed the Jews. And yet he was the son of both ethnic groups. In the anti-biblical anti categories of Marxism, he was both the oppressed and the oppressor in one person, as a child of a mixed marriage. Uh, again, the anti-biblical categories. Of course, that is absurd. However, oppressors and oppressed groups do exist in the fallen world. Those are real things. And Timothy was no stranger to that reality. So he's born in the midst of this tension. 
It's speculative, but due to the absence of the mentioning of his father in places like these epistles and the book of Acts, it is believed by some scholars that Timothy's mom had assimilated into the Gentile world. You imagine just a young Jewish girl wanting to fit in or whatever in this, in this dominant Gentile culture, and she just assimilates into it, walks away from her faith and her culture. And she hooks up with this Gentile guy, and she's just doing her thing, and they have little Timothy and whoever else, and, and, and at some point she comes to faith in Jesus, perhaps through the preaching of the Apostle Paul or some of the early apostles and disciples. She comes to faith in Jesus, and she gets reconnected to her Jewish faith in Israel's Messiah. Her husband likely then abandons her. The Apostle Paul talks in his writings about husbands, unbelieving husbands who abandon their wives in his writings. That is a very common phenomenon in, in the first century for, uh, for someone to come to Christ and for their, their, their spouse to abandon them and say, hey, I didn't, I didn't sign up for this. I'm not down with this. And so the Apostle Paul writes about you know, how you handle that. And, and in fact, that continues today. In our church, we have a dear sister currently dealing with this, an unbelieving husband who served her with divorce papers. And while she stands on God's word that divorce is not God's design... The reality is we are powerless over trying to change another person's heart who is bent on rebellion, in particular when they're non-believers and don't have the spirit dwelling in them that we might appeal to their, their conscience. They are dead in their trespass and sin. They're, they're bent on this. That's going to happen. And so in recreating the story of Timothy based on the New Testament data, many scholars believe that this was something along these lines is what took place. Let me quote from one biblical scholar, Dr. David Stern. He writes, and I quote, I think the most likely reason for Timothy's mixed parentage is that Timothy's mother, Eunice, like many Jews today, was assimilated into the dominant Gentile culture around her and simply did not observe halakha, as Jewish, Jewish law. Before coming to New Covenant faith, she married a non-Jew, but afterwards her pagan and non-believing husband left, or maybe he died, whereupon she raised her son in the faith from childhood. Possibly she and Timothy went to live with her messianic Jewish mother, Lois. I think, I think that's probably what's going on here. It's possible uh, as well that this could have happened earlier. Maybe mama made some mistakes and she came back to faith and she's trying to raise Timothy and she became a, a believer in the Messiah and she put her son in contact with Paul and Paul led him to the Lord and Paul became that surrogate father to him. He calls him son. The Lord replaced that empty hole that was left in his life without a father being there. And she did everything that she could to point him to the Lord. And the church was providing that. I think of single parents in our, our community, in particular single moms, and, and the joy that it is watching them labor to raise, in particular sons, in the ways of the Lord. And, know, and knowing the, the betrayal that takes place when someone leaves and seeing those women of God just stand up and say, I'm going to raise you right. And I'm going to bring Pauls and people into your life to point you to the Lord, to show you this. According to the book of Acts, we, we read that Timothy, not only is he the child of a mixed marriage, but we also read this little detail in the book of Acts, in Acts 16, that Timothy was not circumcised. And, and, and the Apostle Paul is going to Jewish people and proclaiming that the Messiah of Israel had come. And he's going to Gentile people and proclaiming that Israel's Messiah is the Savior of the nations and they need to come to him. And Paul's very sensitive about the differences in these cultures, the Gentiles and the Jewish people. And he's sensitive that it, when he's in one world or the other world, that he, that he doesn't put anything in terms of being an obstacle in presenting the gospel to them. So, so if I could use a, maybe a modern equivalent, if you're trying to witness to people who are hyper-mask people, 
you know, you put the mask on and you talk about Jesus. If you're witnessing to people who are hyper anti-mask people, you take the mask off and you talk to them about Jesus. If you are yourself a hyper-masker, you, you just go, whatever, Lord, protect me from them germs, and I'm going to share Jesus with the no-maskers. You don't want that little piece of cloth to get in your way of sharing the message. If you're talking with someone of a particular political bend or cultural bend or dietary bend, if I'm witnessing the vegans, you know, what's, what's up with those vegan tacos? Let's do this. Whatever is going to get in the way of presenting Christ, I'm going to lay that aside for purposes of sharing the gospel. Well, in this case, Timothy hadn't been circumcised, and he's a grown man. I, I, don't, I won't ask for a show of hands if we have any grown men who had to go through that, but that's not exactly the thing you want to do as a grown man. But in the book of Acts, we see Paul says, hey, bro, if you're rolling with me, uh, you, you got to get circumcised because we go to Jewish people and that, that'll be a big obstacle if you're not. Your, your mom's Jewish, so you're culturally, like you're Jewish. You, you need to get that done. I talked already about the significance of the friendship of Paul and Timothy. This just tells you how close their friendship was. Because uh, after, if, if a guy did that to me, I wouldn't be his friend anymore. But uh, they are tight friends. They've got tears and joy as they think about one another. Timothy went under the knife for mission. He was, he was willing to be cut for sake of mission. He was not going to let anything get in the way of the mission nor anything get in the way of the church coming together as church. These are awesome reminders for us in such divided days. It's all about the mission. And mission exists where worship does not. And so we are calling people in discipleship and calling people to salvation for purposes of cultivating worship. Timothy and his beloved mother and grandmother, they lived in a hard world, a divided world that was full of tensions for Jewish people, especially Jewish Christians. The, the settlements that we know historically and archaeologically in that area in Asia Minor, the settlements of Jewish people were very, very, very small. They were marginalized in that culture. Being Jewish was hard, and being a Jewish Christian was even more hard because you would be ostracized from your Jewish community that more and more was distancing themselves from Yeshua, from Jesus of Nazareth, because the gospel had begun to go into these Gentile populations, and all these Gentiles are coming to faith, and you're going, well, that can't be Jewish. Look at all those Gentiles that are into the Jesus thing. And so that put them at odds. And so these women raising their son in that culture would have faced all kinds of, all kinds of pressure. The temptation would have been to, to leave Asia Minor. The temptation would have been to get out of there, these small communities where you're trapped. We read in the text that she's living with her mom and raising her son. They are sacrificing to be there on mission. And I pray that all of these, all of these are encouragements, in particular to you sisters, you mamas here today, in a crazy place like Los Angeles with all the divides and the cost of living and being crammed in and, and seeing folks leave and abandon the mission field and you going uh, and feeling that temptation yourself and saying, no, we're going to stand, we're going to fight, we'll do whatever it costs, I'll move in with mom, I'm going to raise my kids in the way of the Lord, we're going to do what matters, we are, we are going to stand in the faith. Speaking of faith in mothers, biblically and historically and experientially, we know the intersections of moms and church and salvation, they come together in powerful ways. Our Lord and Savior himself had a biological mother that gave him, him, him his humanity and lovingly reared him spiritually in the faith. The importance of mamas is woven into our gospel. Intuitively, the world knows the importance of moms. 
That's why in over 40 countries today, there are people celebrating this Mother's Day. We know the importance of moms. Motherhood is not a social construct. It is a design feature of a loving God for his creation. And further, for his church, a design for faith to flourish. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, the great North American preacher, had, had four sons. And all four of his sons became ministers. At a family reunion, a friend once asked his sons, which Morgan is the greatest preacher in your family? And while the son looked at his father, he replied, Mom. <laughs> Mom's the greatest preacher in the family. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan felt the same way himself with regard to his, his wife. He, he wrote, and I quote, My dedication to the preaching of the word was maternal. Mother never told it to the baby or the boy, but waited. When but eight years old, I preached to my little sister and to her dolls arrayed in orderly form before me. My sermons were Bible stories that I first heard from my mother, the great preacher said. Similarly, a London editor submitted uh, to Winston Churchill for his approval a list of those who had been Churchill's favorite teachers. Churchill took the list that was given to him and he returned it with this comment, and I quote, you have omitted to mention the greatest of all of my teachers, my mother. Godly mothers have this impact. Historically, I think of the great reformer, Martin Luther. He was born in the 1400s to Hans Luther and to his, his wife, Marguerite. Luther would not be Luther without the sacrifices of his mother. We would have no reformation if, if it weren't for Marguerite. She was the wife of a coal miner, Luther's dad, and, and she often went without food. She fasted and saved that money to pay for her son's education. They lived in hard times. Historians note that Marguerite had eight or nine children, of whom three or four died young. No one could quite remember how many because infant mortality was such a common part of life back then. Martin was the eldest of the surviving children. His parents labored and sacrificed to educate him. The, the closest school where he could get an education was 40 miles away from where they lived. And they, and they sacrificed, his mom sacrificed, went without food for him to go to school there. And of course, that education paved the way for the Reformation. He could translate the scripture, read the scripture. The religious scholar Dr. Martin Marty describes Luther's mother as a hardworking woman of a trading class stock and, and, and middling means, and notes that Luther's enemies actually in the Reformation attacked his mom. His mom suffered for cause of the gospel to raise her son to become the, the, the powerful figure that he was in church history, warts and all, of course. Luther had his flaws. Uh, and his mom suffered as a result of this. The critics of Luther and of the Reformation actually attacked his mom. Uh, you know, it's like uh, uh, mama jokes or whatever, and, and, and I'll leave some of them out because they're, but they made some mean mama jokes of his mom. Another example I think of is Susanna Wesley. She was the wife of a pastor, Samuel, a mother of 19 children. You think we got some large vans uh, in this church. She had 19 kids. I don't know if, that, if you can even fit that in the Criscolo van. Can you get 19 in there? Uh, one author notes, and I quote, in spite of poverty, sickness, disappointment, she managed her household well. Among her children were the great John and Charles Wesley, who were mighty evangelists and preachers, credited with the beginning of what became Methodism. Another author wrote, and I quote, although she never preached a sermon or published a book or founded a church, she is the mother of Methodism. Why? Because two of her sons, John Wesley and Charles Wesley, as children consciously and unconsciously caught and taught, applied the example and the teachings and the circumstances of their home life, what they learned from their mom. The home requires sacrifice, especially for the faithful. 
and especially as we go on mission. And I know we have women in this church, both, both women who are moms and women who are single, and you feel the pressures of the culture that attack your femininity, that question you, that, 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 uh, that, that put you in places that make things very difficult for you. And I want to say on behalf of the men in this church and pastors in this church that we, we applaud your labors in the Lord. Women, we applaud your labors in the Lord. The sacrifices that you make, in particular for those of you with little children, the sacrifices that you make in, in the home front. You know, in our culture, people will sacrifice to give their kids sports. They will sacrifice to give their kids an education. They will sacrifice to give their kids accolades. They will literally move and uproot their lives to get a kid on the right sports team or in the right institution. Now, mind you, I'm not saying that's not Christian. Uh, where, where, where I am going, if you hang on for just a moment, is to say that such a sacrifice is not common in the area of faith. That's where I'm going. You see, parents will sacrifice for sport. They will sacrifice for accolades. But we long to see those same kinds of sacrifices being made in the ways of the Lord. There are many parents that have abandoned their spiritual duties altogether. They farm it out to the church. They farm it even out to the parachurch. And sadly, churches and parachurches will encourage it. Say, yes, bring us your children. We will raise them for you. Programs will be made to, 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 to take the place of really moms and, and dads. One of the great things about this whole COVID and being outside in particular has been this reminder and this renewal, as, as many moms and dads have attested and shared with the pastors in this church, just the reminder of my responsibilities as, as a parent. We, ha we haven't been able to pull off kids' church for, for many months, and they're being reminded, you know what, like kid, I'm, I am the pastor of my children. I am the catechizer of my children. I am called to raise them. It's great to have these supports and these resources, but these aren't essential. Awana is great. Looking forward to seeing it popping again. But the fact of the matter is, this is my calling as, as a parent to be pouring these resources into my children. To, to sit with my wiggly kids. Shout out to all the wiggly kids in the house today. To sit with these wiggly kids and to love them and as a community just, just enjoy their presence and, and, and not let those distractions of maybe a kid being noisy or whatever stand in the way of Christ and his church. We've, we've learned great things. God has been so faithful to us in this 2020-2021 season. In fact, for many, it, is, it has led to just a rethinking of how you're educating your kids, maybe even reconsidering homeschool and looking at the schools in our neighborhood and thinking about, man, what are they doing? What are they doing to our kids? What are they, they teaching our kids? Schools are being bombarded. It's, it's Mother's Day. And so in particular, as we think about moms, we think about gender, and we think about how crazy the issue of gender has gotten in our culture. To such a degree now that having a gender reveal party for your kid, you're pregnant, you're with child, and you're going to cut through the cake and see if it's blue or pink or pop a balloon and blue stuff comes out or pink stuff. Now we're being told that that's hateful. How dare we impose gender on our children, you know? And you're going, well, they come with gender. They come that way. It's not, we're not imposing it. This is just basic science. And so more and more you're seeing this revving up in the culture. It's, it's coming to schools. More and more you're seeing reports of this. In fact, just yesterday I, I read a moving piece. And I want to quote from it for you if you will uh, give me time here. I read a moving piece and it was written uh, from a mother. And she left her name off of it for purposes of protecting her, her children for obvious reasons. It was a moving piece at the Partners for Ethical Care. 
Um, and the title of the piece is, As Mother's Day 2021 Approaches. That's the title. Follow me. As, as Mother's Day 2021 Approaches. Here's how I am this week, as Mother's Day approaches again. I'm exhausted, frustrated, scared. I pulled all of my kids from the public school after one announced a transgender identity. And all the teachers, administrators, and counselors began lying to me, using my child's made-up name and fake pronouns behind my back and undermining my husband and me to our child with words like unsupportive and inappropriate. That child desisted and came back to reality after we cut off the trans juice flowing from the school and social media. So I know pulling my kids from the public school and homeschooling them was the right decision. But now I have no fallback position, no plan B. I didn't just deploy the safety net, I am the safety net. I can't send them back to public school because public school is a toxic place where parents are cut out of the equation and kids are taught lies and propaganda about the most basic facts of biology and personhood. Private schools, even if we could afford them, are also failing in mass to the trans machine's relentless, well-funded, and politicized dogma. Now the trans rights militia is targeting religious schools as well. So I'm homeschooling, and frankly, I'm terrified. It hasn't been an easy year. I have to get these kids educated. I have to get them prepared for college and for life. I have to mitigate the arguments and the aggravations of having multiple teenagers in the same living space and workspace all day, every day. COVID has only exasperated that overwhelming togetherness. I'm the last option. I'm the only thing standing between my kids and the gender machine that wants to chew them up, spit them out, and leave them dependent for the rest of their lives on synthetic hormones, anxiety meds, and whatever else the drug companies and plastic surgeons can sell them or hook them on. The gender machine would rob me of my grandchildren before my children are even old enough to fall in love and marry. I feel the weight of my kids' futures crushing on my back and, and my shoulders as I struggle to stay upright and protect them and keep them growing in a healthy direction. I'm angry. I want someone to answer for what they've put our family through. I want this to end, but I'm the mom. I love my kids. This is what I have to do for as long as it takes. But the culture says I'm abusive, hateful, and bigoted. This is how Mother's Day finds me this year. She closes with this line, maybe next year will be better. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but next year won't be better. The thing is, this is not new. I want to mourn with this mother as I read this article, and I share it with you because I, I figure it might resonate with some of the moms and, and dads and folks in the church. I want to mourn with this mother, but when the emotions run their course, I want to ask this mother, why now? You know this isn't new. Uh, the trans thing is just one of the latest installments of ways in which cultural forces are attacking our children, and particularly in the battlegrounds of the school. Mind you, compulsory education didn't start until the mid-1900s. So, in, in, in fact, some of this is a new phenomenon because of, of the nature of the way that we have set up our schools and our culture. In fact, when you look at the history of our schools and how they were set up, the very beginning of public education uh, was, has a sordid history, and I will exercise uh, restraint in sharing about it because it's fascinating, has a sordid history with the Ku Klux Klan and secularists who are opposing uh, Christians doing education for purposes of, of fighting to keep segregation entrenched. That's a part of the history of our public schools. And I would argue, uh, you know, based on that, I, I, you know, why did Christians ever even get involved with these to begin with? If we want to stand against the ungodly forces that are attacking our children, I mean, from the very get of education in the United States, they were segregated. 
Why would, why, I'm not going to send my kid to a segregated school. I worship a God of the nations who loves all peoples. That's ungodly itself, the segregation of schools, racism in schools, the trans stuff, the Darwin stuff. We could be here all day. Now, mind you, this isn't a rant. You guys know I'm a homeschool dad. This isn't a rant or a, the only way to educate your kids is homeschool. Don't hear that. Please don't hear that. We are in a text that has a mother, a grandmother, and a son, and they are doing everything and anything to raise that child in the ways of the Lord. You can do that sending your kids to public school and to private school and to homeschool. You can, do, you can also fail in doing that at home, right? We can all make those mistakes. And no doubt they're on, uh, there are daddies and mommies that you know, carry certain paternal guilt, like, ah, I should have been harder, I should have done more, I should have whatever, I should have whatever. And just as Paul's talking about parenting and all this sacrifice, where, where, where we might find ourselves as parent with some guilt coming in or thinking about the culture or whatever, he starts moving it to the gospel and reminding us and reminding us, look, this is Jesus' work. Run to him for his grace. Draw your eyes back at the text, verse 6. I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying of hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and discipline. He reminds them where healing will be found. He reminds them where power and resource will be found. It won't be found in reading uh, blogs attacking the culture. It won't be found in, in, in sitting there and just, just wallowing in the madness of our day. It will be found in Christ. D.L. Moody wrote, To fear is to have more faith in your antagonist than in Christ. We are, we are to run to him with this. We are in an era of timidity, 2019, 2020, 2021. We are in an era where the media sells fear to us and wants us to be afraid, and wants us to be angry, and wants us to divide. Hear the word of the Lord that God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Hear and be set free from that spirit of the world that longs to make us afraid and longs to breed discord and division and anger. Turn off the tube and pick up the word of God. I'm convinced that COVID quarantines and church intersections would have been so much different if God's people weren't so glued to media, social media, YouTube, and the rest, and were in the word, hear the word, hear the word call out. Yes, there is fear. Fear brings fighting. Idolatry brings division. Anger breeds anxiety. Hear the word. He has not given you a spirit of timidity, dear brother, dear sister. In terms of the text, he has this language here of laying on of hands. This could be the moment of salvation. Often we read in the book of Acts when People are being led to the Lord. They lay hands on one another and pray. This could be a reminder of gospel, of salvation. The laying on of hands is also used inside of Scripture for commission. When you are commissioning someone to go on mission, it is a reminder, look, don't let the fear stop the mission. Don't let the fear lead you astray. Kindle a flesh. Lay on those hands. Be mindful. The point on the outline, if you are following along in the outline, we looked at mission, motherhood, and now mindfulness be mindful of the spirit of the age that breeds fear and the power of God that sets us free from such fear so that we can continue on laying on of hands, salvation and mission to go and make disciples. The final point on the outline is message. We've considered mission, motherhood, mindfulness, and now in verses 8 through 10, the final point, message, suffering and salvation and testimony. Draw your eyes at the text in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed, we read, of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Paul speaks of 
of suffering. He speaks of suffering not begrudgingly, but willingly. There is not time to survey his beatings and his imprisonments. I encourage you to read the book of Acts, and you can read them, you can reflect on them. You can read the book of Acts in less than two hours if you just sat down and, and, and read it from the beginning to the end. People were imprisoned for the gospel. They were, they were sent to jail cells, and they managed still to spread the gospel and encourage the church and, 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 and to provide writings such as this text that we have that is such, such a feast for our souls. I pray your souls are being stirred as you, you hear the word this day. As you see Paul pointing them, look, to the answer of our timidity is the gospel. He saved us, verse 9. Look at verse 9. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That good news in the face of that bad news. Bad news, death comes. Good news, God has come, became a man, died in our place and gives us life. This week we had a funeral for a beloved brother in our church, Todd Dingham. He, I, 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 an, amazing, an amazing guy, super quiet. He would come, I see the Orums here this morning. They were neighbors. The Orums started bringing him to church. He's raised in the neighborhood, a Westchester guy. Um, he, in fact, was a part of the, the Baptist church in Westchester. The Orums started loving on him. It was harder for him to get out. He was, he, was, he was older. He was deaf. And they would go and pick him up and just bring him to church with him. And he was always such a sweet presence in the church. In particular, personally, I, I, I always enjoyed his presence because he was, a, he was a lip reader. And I have a tendency of talking fast. And so I, I just always, I just really valued his sacrifice because I knew how, <laughs> how difficult it could be trying to follow me. Uh, lip reading and the rest, but he just had this sweet presence about himself. And this week, as we were at Inglewood Cemetery, as we watched his body laid to the ground, as we gathered around the Word of God, and as I was uh, preparing this sermon for this Lord's Day, I had so much comfort here in verse 9 and verse 10, reading of the one who abolished death. That Todd's body might have been put in the cemetery, but his body will rise again. The first fruits that is to come has come. Christ is risen from the dead. He will return, and the dead in Christ will rise. And Todd, while he was deaf in this life, he now hears to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He is with the great abolisher of death. He is with the bringer of immortality. He is with the giver of life. And in talking about the hope of heaven, in talking about the hope of resurrection, I need to say to us who are here today that I'm not talking about escapism. And particularly as we reflected a little bit on, you know, trans agendas and secular powers or whatever. And no, 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 I'm not talking about heaven as a means of escape. When I was a kid, you know, we, we learned a lot about rapture in heaven and a lot about how the world is bad and kind of, you know, you got to get out. You got to get out of there. One day God's just going to snatch us out of this. And, it, and it's like heaven was, it was sort of turned into a narrative about escape. But as an adult reading the Bible, I discover, look, the, the texts and the hope of heaven isn't that we escape this place. It's rather that we invade this place. Todd has been taken. We are left. We are not waiting escape. We have work to do. We have a mission. We have suffering to embrace. We must keep this in mind. We must keep this in mind that we have been called to go. We have been called not to have a spirit of timidity. We have been called not to play into division. We have called to be unified in him. And we have been given a family. 
We have been given a brotherhood and a sisterhood and, and, and this family for purposes of coming and worshiping and bringing this message of hope. Paul was in a jail cell writing this, filled with joy thinking about the mission of the church and thinking about the work that is ahead. We have a work to do, but the work has been accomplished for us. We are going to join in communion. We're going to join in song in just a moment. Would you take your communion cups and let's reflect on the Christ who has come. Reflect on the eternal son who became a man for us. We've studied 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. In those 10, in those 10 verses, Paul uses the phrase Christ Jesus five times. It just dominates the text. Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. He's the center. In fact, in the first two verses, he says it th three times. Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. I pray that when you hear the word at Delray Church, you know, someone says, what, what was the sermon about? He said, Christ Jesus. It's about Christ. And you might hear some illustrations about crazy stuff in the world or whatever. It's about Christ, our hope, our glory. Thinking about Todd and burying him this, this week and thinking about Todd who's present with the Lord and thinking about the mission that we have here today. Thinking of the hopes and the hurts that we have in our community. Even recently, a, a, a family who I love, a part of our church, facing, facing health challenges with one of their children and just I'm wrestling and going, Lord, what are you going to do? What, what's going on here? You know, he's the abolisher of death. He loves us. He's going to care for our children. He's, gonna, he's going to transform his church and his community for his glory. And in this bread, we have this hope. We celebrate this hope because he has done everything for us. It was finished on the cross. Let's eat and reflect on the incarnate one. the beginning of the sermon, I reflected on the role of moms, and in the text of the scripture, we reflected on the significance of Lewis and Eunice in the life of Timothy. There's a, pow there's a power in motherhood. You think of Jesus and his mother, as I highlighted in this message, his heart for his mother as he hung on the cross to his servant John and made sure that she was taken care of. You think of the power of those bonds, sovereignty of God in our lives, and how he uses people in our life for his glory. Think of that power, and then we come to the cup and we think of the power of his blood that washes away all of our guilt and our shame. Any, any, any experience you have when you're listening to the word or reading the word where guilt can creep in, or you think, I, I wasn't the parent I needed to be, or, or man, I messed up that marriage, or I messed up in that relationship or whatever, as we come to the cup, we we realize that while we were sinners, he died for us. He loves us. He's come to set you free of your guilt and shame. You can lay it at the cross now and say, oh, Father, forgive me, and know his forgiveness never runs out, just as this cup never runs out. So let us drink. Let us pray. Let us sing. Let us celebrate. Father, we thank you for the gift in your Son who became flesh, who bled out and died for us. We thank you, O oh Father, for sending your Son, for making us a family, for giving us a family that we otherwise would not have. Lord, we confess that in a fallen earth there is a, a tendency for there to be idolatry around family. And our families can experience uh, brokenness and remind us this world is not our home. 
And yet at the same extent, we want to labor and work to see salvation come to our families. Just as you brought salvation to Timothy, to Lois, to Eunice. And so, Lord, we come today as a church now and we pray for our family members who don't know you. We pray, oh God, that you would reach them, that you would save them. We pray for our prodigal children in our community. Lord, bring them home that we may rejoice, that we may barbecue and celebrate your goodness in, in, in bringing home those who have run from you. Oh, Father, bring us home, for we are prone to wander, we pray. And Lord, we pray especially for uh, the women in our church and the sacrifices they, that they make. Lord, encourage them here this day. Lord, draw, draw the hearts of their children towards them as, as mothers. Lord, draw those hearts toward them as mothers that they may draw their hearts towards you, our Father. Receive these final songs of worship, we pray. Thank you for your love and your mercy. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.